How well do you know your friends? They're probably good fellas, right? I bet they are. Chuck Diddleson's friends? I'd use different words to describe them. So in 2016, the boys in Brown found Chuck chopped up in a Bangkok freezer. And when that freezer opened, so did a mystery. That's a murder mystery for the ages. It landed in the laps of Thailand's expats in 2016. There was a frozen, chopped-up body, passport forgery gangs, Pat Pong and soy cowboy frauds, and a man who claimed he was CIA. And who was the victim? Chuck. Why was he in Thailand? See, he was a successful businessman in California before washing up in Southeast Asia. He loved trains. He built a publishing empire around them. He made his millions and lost his millions. And he ended up in a cold, deep sleep in a Bangkok freezer. This is the story of Chuck Diddleson and his murder and the crimes of Herbert Craig Lafon. So all of this was just the tip of the iceberg. You know, the sordid details started to leak to the press with this case. There were crime scene photos, a decapitated head that showed up on Stickboy Bangkok's website. It was uh, all over Facebook and all the forums. Uh, this was back in late September, early October 2016. There were a ton of armchair sleuths out there. They were hitting the forums hard. They thought they would do a better job than the Thai police. They thought they were more competent, of course. And, of course, you could trust some guy on Thai visa to do the job better than the Thai police, right? I mean, right? So this story really had it all. Like I said, there was a frozen, chopped-up body. He ended up being a former publishing executive from California. That's Chuck. There was an FBI fugitive on the lam for a few decades. That's Herbert Craig Lafone. He claimed to be CIA when he, him and his crew would go down to the bars on Soy Cowboy and Pot Pong. When the police raided the house, there was a shootout with the police. Chuck's body was found in the autopsy to have been jacked up with truth serum. When they raided the house, there was a ton of meth. There was fake passports, and some of them could even be tied back to known terrorists who were working with Al-Qaeda in Pakistan. So all of this was happening late September, early October 2016. There was a flurry of stories as that happens, as it's common uh, in the Thai press, in the English language press. And then around mid-October 2016, the story just blinked out of existence. Uh, there was basically radio silence from that point on in both the Thai and English language press until about December 2017. And that's when the main suspect, Lafon, was sentenced to 43 years in Thai prison. Uh, he was sentenced for concealing a corpse, weapons charges, narcotics, and fraud, not for murder. So after that, there was about a three-year break between that and when I started to look at the story. And there was basically nothing writ about it, written about it since then. Uh, I've looked into uh, this, this case pretty extensively and basically nobody had touched the story absolutely nobody since uh, around the end of 2017 when Lafon was sentenced. 
So I wrote a pretty lengthy look at this case um, in January of this year, 2021, clocked in at about 15,000 words. I really poured over about 100 sources, uh, past news articles. I started to dig deep on uh, both the Thai and English press accounts that had been released at different stages. I established a timeline with that. I looked at court records that uh, involved Chuck's former publishing company, which is called Sedco Publishing. Keep that word in mind, Sedco. I'm going to be referring to it quite a bit. Uh, and uh, I, I looked at his home sales uh, when he was back in California. I looked on the Wayback Machine, uh, archive.org. I don't know if you've ever used that, but you can see how websites used to look in the past. Um, I looked at his past websites for his publishing company to see what news was out there at the time. I looked at forum posts, both in Thailand and uh, in train forum, uh, people who are train enthusiasts. Uh, they have some pretty active forums, and I started to look at these. I looked at old Facebook posts and comments. I looked at old magazine advertisements. I really just kind of exhausted all the resources that I could. I established timelines from this uh, information. I thought about motivations. Uh, I separated the truth from the fictions and the misinformation that uh, came out in the flurry of press during this time. And so this is the work I did to get out the first story, and that's what I'm going to be covering in this first podcast, and it's going to be lengthy. I'm going to warn you now uh, that this isn't going to be some 15-minute episode. So if you need to go get a drink, if you need to go pour yourself a whiskey, or if you need a couple beers, please go get a cold one right now. Get out your cigar that you've been saving for a special occasion, pour yourself that glass of wine that you've been thinking about since Monday when you started working this week, and let me take you on this journey into the cold, deep sleep, the case of Chuck Diddleson and Herbert Craig Lafon. So Chuck's story starts really back in the late 1970s. That's when he started putting out train calendars. Uh, there was an advertisement that I found, um, and this is what really put Chuck on the map from 1984. It was an October 1984 issue of the Pacific Rails News. Uh, it featured a front-page advertisement selling train calendars, and uh, the name of the calendar for 1985 uh, the name of the calendar that really put Chuck on the map was called Those Magnificent Trains. So in this calendar, it said, now in its sixth year, Charles Diddleson's Those Magnificent Trains calendar for 1985 is a striking work of art that you will want to have. Uh, so now I found this advertisement, um, and I have it in the article that I wrote. So he started his calendar business publishing about trains. This was about 30 years before he was uh, found in a Bangkok freezer, his body chopped up in a half dozen pieces. And what I started to look at was information about this company because everybody loved his calendars. He became quite well known uh, in certain circles. 
at at one point he had built up his company to be about 250 employees. Uh, they had $48 million in revenue. So there was a lot of people who knew Chuck from this time. And when Chuck went missing, which was actually eight years prior to when the Thai police found his body in Bangkok in the freezer, uh, the last real traces of Chuck are at least publicly known uh, from 2008. And I'll get to that in a minute. But in 2009, I stumbled upon um, a couple train, or excuse me, from, uh, I, so I stumbled upon a couple train forum, enthusi- uh, train enthusiast forums. And in, uh, I looked at archival posts on these forums. Uh, just to, this just gives you an example of some of the things I found about him. Um, so in January 2009, uh, at least, this was at least three months after Chuck had, there's any traces of Chuck, at least that are publicly confirmed, and I was able to confirm. Um, there was someone on the trainorders.com forum who asks, uh, does anyone know what happened to Chuck Diddleson's calendar outfit? That's referring to Sedco Publishing. Uh, it looks like some other outfit, ba- outfit back east is publishing some of the them for 2009, some, uh, some of the other calendars that they had been doing, uh, except without the usual quality that Sedco had. Uh, and some discussion of Chuck's calendar business and publishing operation followed this. It ended with a comment from a user who said, unfortunately, Chuck went bankrupt last year again and left the photographers unpaid for the 2008 calendar line. It says if he ever brings back the Magnificent Trains title, he's going to have a tough time getting photos from any of us. So this is a theme that I had found in a lot of the forum posts and comments about Chuck and his company is that the Magnificent Trains title, which he had published for decades, that's how he got his business started, like that advertisement I referred to, which had been published all the way through 2009. Uh, So for over 25 years, he published this title. It was very popular. The photographers who took photos of trains in the American landscape, these were beautiful photos of trains traveling throughout uh, the United States uh, that people enjoyed in calendars. Uh, the photographers weren't being paid by Chuck and Sedco, and so they, the vendors that he was dealing with were not happy. And this is a theme I'll follow up with in a minute, which is the business problems that Chuck had going into uh, the end uh, and last few years of his life. Now, this is a man who he really was the driving engine of the train calendar business, at least in the United States. He brought quality and innovation in the photos and the calendars that he produced. So I started to wonder, like, how did this man get to Thailand? Why did he end up here? Because by the end of it, I had found that Chuck was a man who had faced bankruptcy, business failure. See, Sedco failed as a business. And he had a massive amount of personal debt. So when I first started to look at the story and motivation, I thought that like many men of his age, they want uh, to seek a new life in Thailand. I mean, who wouldn't? You know, when you get beat up and you lose your position back home, it's very attractive to seek out a new lease on life in a place like Thailand. 
there's cheap beer here. There's beautiful tropical weather. There's smiling women always at the ready, no matter where you turn. And so at some point in 2008, Chuck did come to Thailand. He was also flush with cash, at least from my speculation, because he sold, according to documents, between uh, his house in Mill Valley, California, which is in the Bay Area, uh, at some point between August and October 2008. And so after that, he must have come to Thailand because he needed to sign the documents in in California. Most of the articles and things that were written about the Chuck Diddleson murder really focused instead on the alleged killer, Herbert Craig Lafon. There really wasn't much written about Chuck Diddleson. In fact, the things that were written about him were mostly incorrect. There were stories that came out at this time that Chuck was a Hungarian national uh, because when the autopsy was done, uh, they found that the man who was found in the freezer was a Hungarian, according to the DNA results. Um, And so when this hit the Thai news, uh, the English language press copied it. And even in some train magazines, they said that he was Hungarian. Uh, there was basically not much follow-up on this in the English language reports in Thailand, like in The Nation and the Bangkok Post. A lot of them ended uh, their coverage saying he was a Hungarian. Some of them corrected and uh, confirmed that he was American. There was a lot of confusion about his identity, and we'll get to that here in a little bit. But I started to think about how Chuck and why he came to Thailand and how he got wrapped up with Lafon. Uh, and I started to think about Lafon's motive if he was the killer. Because uh, the way it's been told, Chuck's body was found uh, September 23rd in 2016. And the circumstances around the discovery um, are a bit strange. Uh, so this is what happened. The police raided the home of... Lafon, it was a shop house, um, after they received a tip from another American named Donald Kramer, he had been nabbed with a forged passport on September 15th, 2016. And Donald told the Thai police that he had bought the phony passport uh, from a shop house on Sukhumvit, Soy 56. So the police raided that home and they, at the time, were just looking for a passport forgery operation. That's why they raided the house. When they knocked, Lafon answered, and once he saw it was a raid, the cops were greeted with gunshots. So Lafon did manage to wound one tourist cop uh, in the shootout. So when officers started to search the house, they found the fake passports, which is why they raided the house. They found the equipment and tools to make them. They found various firearms illegally uh, in the possession of uh, the people in the the shop house, which uh, and and they also found a lot of drugs, which was meth. Uh, So there were two other Americans, uh, Americans in the shop house as well. One is named Aaron Gable. Uh, He was a 34 year old or he is uh, still alive, but. At the time, he was 34 years old. 
Uh, he had a, a, a Thai wife and a daughter, half Thai daughter. Um, there was also a man named Jim Egger, who was uh, 67 at the time. He was a former oil executive. Uh, he had moved to Southeast Asia to become a palm oil consultant, according to the press and his LinkedIn, uh, which uh, so so he had spent uh, quite a few years in, in Southeast Asia, in Indonesia uh, and Thailand. Uh, so the big surprise, though, came when the cops opened the freezer in the back room. And this is when they found a body chopped up into six pieces, head chopped off, decapitated. It was frozen solid, and the, each of the body parts was stuffed into black trash bags. So on the spot, uh, Lafon, Gable, and Egger were all arrested on charges related to the weapons, the drugs, and the dead body found in the home. Um, now, photos pretty much from the bust and, and the discovery were uh, released and they uh, were leaked and they hit the internet and the story just started to take a life on its own at the time. Uh, so in the autumn of 2016, uh, uh, late September, the expat forums, you know, Teak Door, Thai Visa, Facebook, etc., were basically lit up with speculation about what uh, had happened. And uh, there was a great deal of skepticism about the Thai's uh, police's ability to solve the crime. The problem is, if you look at the initial reports that came out, there was a lot of confusion. You see, I'm referring to the main suspect who's still sitting in a Bangkok prison to this day, who was uh, sentenced to 43 years. See, when the initial reports came out, the basic facts about who this man was were not so clear uh, because he was living under assumed identities. He was actually known as Peter. Uh, that's how people in Bangkok knew him, people from the bar scene. Um, he had passports that identified him as British, Irish. Uh, so as the days went on, reports came out and they found, or excuse me, they reported that he was a British man. Finally, after some time, it uh, was determined uh, by looking at uh, working with American law enforcement that he was actually uh, Herbert Craig Lafone, who was an American and who had been on the run from uh, FBI for some time. Uh, it also took a couple weeks for the Thai police who were working with American law enforcement at this time uh, to, to conclude that Chuck was the victim. And so really the only clue that they had that was made public was uh, that, that, that basically helped them in their early identification efforts uh, was that the corpse was wearing a t-shirt with the Sedco logo. Uh, so the publishing business that Chuck had started and ran for his entire life, uh, he was the body in the freezer was wearing the t-shirt Sedco. So the last day of his life, the man that was found in the freezer, he also wore a t-shirt with the logo of the of the business that he had the publishing business and that was what was found so uh there one of the really odd pieces about this story regarding lafon's motives was that there was a thai police psychologist who early on came out with a theory of the motivation of the killer which was that the killer was having a homosexual affair with the victim and uh, basically, the attachment, the lover's attachment to the victim 
uh, pro- basically stopped him from disposing of the body because if you think about it, why would a man keep or why would a killer keep a body chopped up and frozen in a freezer? Uh, and it was later determined that Lafon uh, had bought that freezer eight years prior. So police believe this is how the story goes is the police believe that the man found in the freezer had been there for perhaps eight years and had even been moved from another location to the one on soy 50 Sukhumvits 56 uh, where the, the house was raided. So if that makes sense, basically the body could have been kept for eight years. It was chopped up. One would assume that if you wanted to get away with the crime, you'd have disposed of the body piece by piece. There would have been ways to do that, you know, feed it down to the monitor lizards down in Lumpany Park or, you know, get rid of them bit by bit. But that did not happen. Uh, The body was kept in the freezer and, uh, you know, people on the forum, the forum trolls really got a kick out of this, uh, that there was a Thai police psychologist who had come up with this theory about homosexual attachment to the victim. And I'll get to this later, but keep this detail in mind about the perhaps the deviant nature of these guys, and Chuck included. See, Chuck isn't as stainless as a victim as one would imagine. So when Lafon was interrogated, he uh, confessed that Chuck had owed him about 2 million baht, which was about $60,000 at the time. And this is the motivation for the killing. Now, Lafon, a little bit about him, because I I kind of glossed over this a little bit. There was a lot written about Lafon, and this is what really dominated the headlines. And this is where the kind of like the the press and kind of like the people who are interested in in crime and and everything, they they really latched on to Lafon because he had been a a fugitive wanted by the FBI for credit card fraud since 1979. And that's when he fled the United States. Uh, he had uh, FBI bulletins that had been released that I found uh, that said that he he had been living under up to 16 different aliases in Mexico uh, and in Asia, and he ended up in Thailand and actually raised a family here. So Peter Lafon, who who went by the name Peter in Thailand, uh, was pretty well known in certain circles. He was a, he was a big talker. So down by the Patpong bars, he would often claim that he worked for the CIA. Of course, most people could smell the bullshit from a mile away on this. Most people thought he was a harmless crank. You know, the bar stool special forces that are a common stereotype in Thailand. Uh, they thought kind of he was, you know, just off his rocker a little bit, had delusions of grandeur but he actually was like a legit crook Uh, he was a dangerous man in fact when police tried to bring his ex-wife who was thai in for questioning to at least build a little background about his character uh she refused and she cited that uh he had threatened her in the past and she was deathly afraid of of this man lafon so lafon stuck with his story as time went on uh, with a little twist, he added that 
Uh, so basically, the the story was that Chuck was in debt, which is odd too, because just as a little aside, Chuck hadn't been in Thailand very long if he was murdered in two thousand eight, eight years prior to the police finding the body, uh, and around the time when Chuck left the United States was the end of or the, the autumn of two thousand eight, uh, and Lafon is claiming that uh, he was owed two million baht. And so there wasn't – if you look at the timeline, there there wouldn't have been much time for Chuck to meet this guy and get into debt with him. It's not like you meet someone and within a few weeks you are in debt for $2 million baht. It's just a, it's just odd, right? So – but Lafon stuck with this. Uh, he added that he wasn't actually the one to kill Chuck. He insisted that the killer was another man named Robert Logan Grandy who had died earlier in 2016 from cancer. He had passed away earlier that year when Chuck's body was discovered in the freezer. And uh, Grandy, who had passed away from cancer, natural causes, supposedly, his body had already been cremated and his bones and his final words and his testimony to whether, whether he was a killer or not had been turned to ash by this point. And so mostly this was the whole story. This is what the story kind of uh, gelled up as, and this is what was presented in the press. And pretty much in October 2016, that was the end of it. It fizzled out. Um, There was a whole flurry of tabloids and articles and buzz in late September, early October, and then it was just radio silence after this. Until December 2017, when Lafon was sentenced for to 43 years in prison, uh, and his charges were he was sentenced for were uh, attempted murder of a police officer when he got into a shootout. He shot the tourist cop. He was convicted of transporting a body without proper cause because the freezer was moved from his previous residence to the one on Sukhumvit uh, Soy 56, and he was charged with. Uh, narcotic possession with the intent to sell because there was uh, a kilo or two of meth found in the shop house. Uh, It's important to note there was actually no murder charge for the body that was found in the freezer. The other two Americans that were with Lafon during the raid, they were acquitted of all charges. The drugs, the murder, the body, the weapon, concealing the body, none of those charges stuck. It is important to note, however, and this is a one detail out of the thousands of details about this case that I've thought about that really sticks in my mind and is very odd, is that Aaron Gable, the younger of the three guys, the three Americans, uh, he was acquitted. Um, he he wasn't able to make bail, and so he was basically stuck in a Thai prison for about a year and a half, two years after this case, um, and there was a campaign uh, launched by his family to get him out uh and even though he was innocent. But his fingerprints actually were found on the bag that had uh, Chuck's head head in it. So the the black trash bag that had Chuck's head in it when they found it in the freezer, Aaron Gable's fingerprints were on it, even though he denied knowing about the body. So I don't know how you would touch a bag in a freezer with a human head in it without knowing it. And denying that you know it. I guess it could happen. I guess you could be looking for, you know, a frozen pizza or, you know, fish sticks or something. 
but that is how it went. Now, the other two guys, Jim Egger and Aaron Gable, those two guys, they were acquitted of all charges. Jim Egger actually left the country. He made bail and left the country at this point. Okay, we'll get to them in here a little bit. Lafon, who had been a crook for a long time, he had been on the run for years and years on the lam from the FBI. He was all but convicted of Chuck's murder. He was convicted of narcotics, weapons, shooting an officer, transporting a body, but no murder charge. And that's a really odd point, too, to, to keep in mind. So... For all these years, Lafon was able to stay off the radar of Thai police. There's no indication that he had committed any uh, or that he had been uh, convicted of anything in Thailand up until this point. He was likely defrauding people. He was forging passports. He was dealing in narcotics. Uh, he may have roughed up people and murdered others, but there's no, there's nothing that's there's no charges against him up until this point. He was just another barstool warrior. Uh, he talked loud. He was a big spender. He liked to pick up people's tabs. So this is the case I was presented with. I really became intrigued, though, more with Chuck. See, there was a lot of questions that started to come up in my mind, and I started scratching my head at pretty much every turn. Number one, how did this guy get mixed up with a guy like Lafon within... I would we would have to assume within weeks of landing in Thailand and I'll get more into the timeline here in a moment but how did he get how did this former business executive who ran a calendar printing business get mixed up with a guy like Lafon who is like the stereotypical Asian uh, uh, expat in Asia barstool loudmouth claiming he works CIA, claiming this, claiming that. How did a pretty savvy business guy get uh, wrapped up with this guy? So how did Chuck, who was a fresh-off-the-plane expat, meet this guy, Lafon? Why did Lafon keep this frozen body chopped up in a half dozen pieces in his own home for so long, for up to eight years? Because he had bought the freezer eight years prior and the police said that's when the, the body was put into the freezer. So for eight years, there was a freezer with a dead body in it. That's another question. Another question is, how did Chuck die? See, because he was found with truth serum in his body in the autopsy. And what was the real motive? Because Lafon said it was for debt that Chuck owed Grandy, this guy who had died from cancer, he owed him money. Why was Chuck in Thailand in the first place? When did he arrive? What did the, his last weeks and months look at look like? Uh, some of these questions I do have conclusive answers for. Others, I don't. And the first time I wrote, or when I first put out the first uh, story, which was 15,000 words back in January of 2021, I, I had a lot of questions about Chuck. And a lot of those have been answered in the months since. And I'll get to this in a part two uh, about his background, more that revealing stuff, but I want to lay out the groundwork for, for, for that uh, and kind of cover some of the first stuff that I covered in my first story. So the first place to start, I think in this story is Chuck's 
business problems. And there was a lawsuit that's really illuminating about this with Sedco, his publishing company, and the issues that it had. So there was a court case, uh, Charles E. Diddleson, Inc. versus Dai Nippon Printing Company. Uh, the details are pretty tedious. Um, I'm just going to sum them up very quickly. Basically, Sedco uh, doing business. Uh, Sedco had the publishing company had filed a lawsuit against the American division of Dai Nippon Printing Company in the uh, San Francisco courts. Uh, the Dai Nippon was a Japanese printing company, uh, longstanding. Uh, Chuck's company, Sedco, put forth the claim that uh, there was fraud and negligence on behalf of Dai Nippon. Uh, this was in... Uh, this is from business deals that took place between November 1999 and June 2000. You see Chuck, Chuck's uh, company hired Dai Pone to print calendars for his business at Dai Pone's Hong Kong printing facilities. And it was supposed to be to Hong Kong printing standards. So the lawsuit alleged that the breach of contract started in, in January 2000 after the deal was inked. Uh, and continued during the entire duration of that deal and claims that Dai Pone didn't print the calendars in Hong Kong, that they ended up printing them on in mainland China. And ultimately, there was an inferior product delivered to Chuck's calendar business. And this led to financial issues because they were unable to sell the calendars uh, and that they were uh, of such poor quality that they had to be returned. And this led to delays for Sedco to deliver products to his clients and customers, which at this point were uh, retailers and stores throughout the United States. Uh, he's, the Sedco claimed that they tried to sell the calendars, but they uh, could not be shipped out. Uh, this significantly hurt their sales. Uh, they tried to recoup a judgment from the costs, including damages and interest on damages and fees and punitive damages due to the fraud. Uh, there was a 98 different court actions that followed over the next three and a half years after this. Uh, and a counter complaint was filed by Diane Pone um, in January 2002, which basically is that uh, Sedco wasn't paying their bills to Diane Pone for the services and product rendered. Uh, and there were some interesting facts I found in these court records. One is that Sedco in 1997 had revenues of $45 million, uh, and by 2001, these revenues had dropped to $28 million. So at this time, Sedco was not just publishing train calendars, even though that's kind of how they started. Uh, they were printing 125 different separate uh, calendar titles. They included Star Wars, uh, those... Uh, I don't know if you know Anne Geddes, Geddes. She's a famous Australian photographer who did those baby, that famous baby photography that was pretty popular about 20 years ago when you bought calendars. So the sales agreements between the uh, Diane Pone and Sedco uh, were basically not fulfilled on Sedco's end because they weren't paying their, their, uh, for the product, for the purchase orders. And so invoices weren't getting paid by this time in the company. And this ties back to that one photographer that had uh, worked for Sedco, uh, or, or at least was uh, sending photo uh, photographs to Sedco who was not being paid and said that a lot of photographers 
weren't going to work with Sedco anymore because they weren't getting paid. Um, so there was kind of like a hint of business troubles around this time. Basically, at the end of the day, uh, what happened was Sedco had pretty much a crazy just run of business uh, into the late 90s. They were making a lot of money. Uh, they started to drop off. Revenue started to d- decrease. Uh, there was some articles that I found uh, that were published in the late 90s uh, interviewing Chuck uh, and his company, which was in the Bay Area of California. Uh, there was one quote that said, when I started doing Sedco, I was working out of a bedroom in my house. Then I had 140 employees. Uh, that was in 1998. And then now they have 50, and that was in 2003. So they went from 140 employees to 50 in five years. By 2003, uh, most of their business was calendars. They still were producing many different types of calendars. They had the Star Wars calendars. Uh, They had Queer Eye for the Straight Guide. They had the baby calendars. And so this... In the background, this court battle between Diane Pone and Chuck's company uh, had been waging and raging, and the cross-complaint that Diane Pone filed uh, against Sedco resulted in Sedco uh, be getting a, a, a court-ordered judgment against Sedco uh, for the total amount of four, uh, $470,000. And so by this time... Uh, the complaint from Diane Pone stated that uh, a manager from their company in December 2001 had gone to meet Chuck uh, and Sedco requested that a payment arrangement had uh, at this time to allow for payment for the product of $50,000 weekly. Uh, Sedco's debts were about $2.5 million uh, to Diane Pone. Diane Pone rejected this offer. Uh, they didn't believe that Sedco could generate these sales. And so there was $470,000, which was the balance that was the part of the judgment. And then there was another uh, $930,000 in uh, fees and court fees, etc., cetera, uh, that they had to be paid. So it was a total judgment of $1.4 million. This was from August 2005. So... By August 2005, this judgment had been levied against Sedco, and you would figure a company that still had revenues about $20 million in annual revenue could have prepared and braced for this. Uh, But this is what happened on July 27th, 2005. There was a uh, a story in Publishers Weekly uh, which is uh, kind of like a uh, industry magazine for publishing. Um, and it read, Sad Diary Entry, The Calendar Maker Sedco Closes. And it states that Sedco quietly shut its doors and reportedly let all staff go. A main company number has a message that Sedco's office is no longer open for business. People who inquired to the company lawyer uh, have not been returned. So calls to the lawyer have not been returned. And so pretty much coinciding with this court judgment, the company had failed and Publishers Weekly uh, weekly described how 
according to Sedco ex-employees, uh, that Diddleson was Chuck was engaged in erratic behavior for the weeks leading up to the company's closure. He would call company-wide meetings to announce his retirement, uh, and he called another meeting that claimed that he was fighting against a, a hostile, hostile takeover. He even said he'd cover the payroll himself of, for the employees. Uh, the HR manager at Sedco told everybody to leave the office. Uh, the article said that employees stormed Chuck's office, even though it was locked. And he rejected a deal for stakeholders to buy the company. Uh, people weren't paid for weeks. So this is this is what hap- happened at the end of Sedco. And it must have been hard, you know, if you st- take a step back and think about it. It was a hard fall for a company. At one point, they had dominated the publishing industry for calendars, especially around trains. They had gotten uh, the licensing deals from Star Wars and, and Lord of the Rings and Charlie's Angels and Queer Eye for the Straight Guy and those cute little babies and flower pots to publish those calendars as well. And I would imagine if you take a step back and think that Chuck must have taken this business failure hard. And I think anybody would. You just need to, you know, read about the things that people do when businesses fail. Some people do take the final step of suicide. Some people start to engage in fraud to keep the business afloat. You see, Sedco just wasn't some business. This was really his baby. He started it as a side hustle in a spare room of his house, and he grew it to be a massive publishing empire for calendars. He took a lot of risk. He followed his passions. This was truly like the American dream, right? He had grown this business by his own two hands. And I would imagine that losing a business like this was like losing a child. But the best entrepreneurs out there, they fight. Even after a loss, they keep fighting. They reinvent themselves. They don't give up. And that's what Chuck was. He was a fighter. We only really have one interview on the record with the man and this was from that 2003 article that i quoted but the actions that chuck took after the demise of sedco tell the true character of this man i don't think he was going to give up it wouldn't be an easy fight but on those train forums which i had mentioned earlier you see the comments there flooded in once news hit of Sedco's bankruptcy. So I found one post on a train forum on July 30th, 2005. So this was right smack dab between the days that Sedco's offices closed and the day that Dai Nippon won their court judgment against Sedco. So this is right around that same time in that same week, two week period. There was a guy or a user on train orders, the dot com, the train uh, enthusiast forum who said uh, who uh, and this was the topic was Sedco, the calendar company bankrupt. This was the, the thread. 
See, because Sedco was a was a well known name in the train enthusiast industry and hobby. So it said, my local newspaper had a front page story this morning about Sedco closing its doors. Unclear whether it is permanent, but apparently Sedco is in serious trouble. They did some nice railroad calendars. Another person replied and said, that's really a shame. My wife and I used to enjoy his calendars. And another person quoted an article from uh, a local newspaper, the Marin Independent Journal. And he said, as the article said, the calendars have been printed and are sitting in a warehouse in Nevada. I just received copies of the 2006 train calendars. And I have some photos in each of these. So let's hope they get straightened out enough to ship to their dealers. But this doesn't bode well for future years or for getting paid. So this was a photographer, a a vendor who had done some work, had some uh, photographs in the calendars, and he wasn't going to get paid. At least he didn't think so. So Sedco wasn't paying. They weren't paying employees. They weren't paying photographs. They had a judgment against them from a Japanese company. Another person jumped in and said, poor sales probably did them in. I know some who boycotted the company products due to their attitude. Due to their attitude, he says. Due to their attitude. Another comment says, I've had an 18-year business relationship with Chuck, and I'd like to say that he has always been cordial, honest, and great to deal with. He's been one of the few people that I've been comfortable with using my slides for publication as they've always come back to me in timely fashion in the same shape as when I lent them them to him i wish him the best and see this is the interesting thing since i put out this story about a dozen people have contacted me from chuck's past just chuck's past see a lot of people knew chuck he ran this business a lot of people who formerly worked with him got in touch with me a lot of people who knew him on a personal level got in touch with me and they told stories about chuck that were very revealing, which I will get to in a later uh, part of this podcast series. But it's kind of a mixed bag with Chuck. This is the big takeaway. We'll get into the details in a little bit, but this is the big takeaway. Everybody kind of had an impression with Chuck, and it, it's not like you could have a neutral impression. You, you, you had an opinion. He was one of the people that gave you an impression, a strong impression. You either liked the guy or you didn't like the guy. There was no in-between. See, people came to his defense and then people attacked him. This was both online and people who had contacted me. So there was other forum posts on trainorders.com. This one was from December 2005. Uh, The thread title was just simply Sedco, which was the publishing company, remember. And it says, what's the deal with Sedco? I heard they went out of business, but their website is still up. They don't respond to emails anymore or calls to their toll-free number. However, they are accepting new orders and do respond to email, but then they do not send you what you ordered. I am so confused. So they're accepting new orders, they're responding to emails, but they're not sending out calendars, right? Another comment in this thread goes, a long and sorry story not unlike a soap opera. Now, remember, this is in 2005, three years before, before there's uh, any last traces of Chuck 
And 11 years before, they found him in a freezer in Bangkok. Now listen to this comment. This was on a forum from 2005. A long and sorry story, not unlike a soap opera. The company is bankrupt. It's in the hands of a receiver. The court fight continues. I did read a fairly comprehensive summary of the situation recently. Was it in a Bay Area newspaper? Anyone have the link? And this was from uh, the Marin Independent Journal, uh, which was from July 2005. There's a quote from the article again, uh, which goes, It's been a bizarre month at San Rafael calendar maker Sedco Publishing, a struggle between the company's founder and an alliance of its largest shareholder, and who I will comment on here uh, later. But keep that in mind. There was a large business partner with with Chuck. Uh, And, okay, so the article continues. And some creditors uh, has devolved into an ugly battle over how to get the company out of millions of dollars in debt and who will lead it in doing so. A judge appointed a bankruptcy trustee this week to run the company's books. Uh, In the forum, the trainorders.com forum, it says, Diddleson is trying to make a comeback with a new calendar company next year. So somebody who knew Chuck and his business said that there was going to be a new calendar company launching. Uh, from the research I did on this guy who made this comment, he was likely a trained photographer and who had worked with Sedco in the past. Uh, and he had personal knowledge of the situation at Sedco and knew that there might've been future business in the future. So Chuck had his supporters. He had his detractors. He had his fans. He had his enemies. And, At the end of the day, this was a man who loved trains. He broke onto the market in the late 70s with those magnificent trains. And in the end, it was a lawsuit and bankruptcy that finished his company. But like I said, this man was a fighter. He wasn't done yet. So this is where the story gets interesting. And this is where Chuck finds his reincarnation in business. You know, as an expat in Thailand, you're well aware of how the expat rumor mill works. Uh, there's a bit of information that comes out. There's a rumor. And there's a little nugget of truth. And it's going to be chewed up on the bar stools in pubs from Bangkok to Phuket, from Isan to Pattaya. And it gets spit back out on forums like Thai Visa expat Facebook groups. And by the time it's all said and done, the little bit of nourishment that you had from the truth has now been regurgitated and swallowed and spit back up over and over and over again, maybe dozens or hundreds of times in wild iterations fueled by piss-warm Chong beer and alienation in this strange land. And the funny thing about that is, Thailand expat forums are not unique in this regard. Some wish that they were. Some wish that the trolling peanut gallery on Thai Visa and Facebook groups would make for an easy scapegoat so that one could feel superior in their outlook and their understanding of the land of smiles. 
because we're all experts behind our keyboards, right? But I digress. See, the train forums that were frequented by those who knew Chuck and Sedco, they had their own style of rumors that were just really a bit of fact. So I wanted to know exactly how Chuck's new business ventures fared after Sedco went under. So I hit the forums, the train forums, and I found this post from July 1st, 2006 uh, in a thread titled Sedco Calendars. The comment goes, Has the reincarnation of Sedco began? Rumors have it that there is an ad in Railfan regarding new products. Another comment says, I recently got a letter from Chuck looking for submissions. He's added a few new railroad titles. The exact subjects escape me at the moment. Another comment said, There's a full, pad, full page ad on the rear cover of the August issue of Railfan. So there we go. There's a magazine called Railfan. Chuck's advertising in it in 2007. It's for the 2000, or 2006. It's for the 2007 calendar collection. Looks similar to Sedco calendars of the past. The website name seems to allude to a Sedco past. And the website was cedrr.com. And there's an, finally another comment, which this explains the domain website name. Uh, and the comment goes, not necessarily. CEDR is an acronym for Charles E. Diddleson. That's his initials. And the comment goes, duh, that was CED and Sedco. Can you tell I'm jet lagged? So Sedco was Charles E. Diddleson. That's that was his initials. So that is explains his company name, Sedco. It's Charles E. Diddleson Co. He launched a new website after Sedco fell called CEDRR.com. RR would be railroad. See, Chuck wasn't done. Sedco Publishing might have been done. The dozens of employees at the office were done, but not Chuck. So I, stirred, I started to turn over more stones. I found more legal records that gave more of a clear timeline as to what Chuck was doing and when in, a, for, in his business. Uh, it's a fact that he launched on August 1st, 2006. He filed uh, articles of incorporation for the Mill Valley Licensing Company. Uh, this was with the California state, uh, and uh, the governor at the time was Arnold. Arnold was the governor uh, at this time, just uh, for a little background there. Uh, he named himself as the primary agent, the director, and the officer of the company. The address was listed at 119 Bayview Drive, Mill Valley, California. That was his home for decades uh, and so up until 2006, that address can still be tied to him, which was two years before he presumably left, came to Thailand. So we're establishing more of a timeline here. Uh, it's a residential address, that home. Uh, it's, it's a beautiful place overlooking the Bay Area. You can see pictures of it uh, on the article I wrote. Uh, it's really quite a beautiful place. Uh, and if he would have kept it until now, uh, the price must be just out of control. Real estate is out of control in that area. <clears throat> uh, later in 2006, in December 29th, right before the end of the year, uh, documents were filed uh, keeping the Mill Valley Licensing Company current with California Business Filing Protocol. 
Uh, the same was done on September 12th, 2007. There was no change in address, no change to the business. So all the way up until, um, and this has Chuck Diddleson's signature on it. Uh, we can conclusively say that as of September 12th, 2007, Chuck was still living at that Mill Valley, California address. He had not moved to Thailand yet as of September 12th, 2007, because his John Hancock, his signature was on these documents. In fact, it's not until about a year later that his Mill Valley home sold. But I won't get ahead of ourselves just yet. We can't follow Chuck to Thailand because, you see, remember, Chuck was a fighter. So he was getting, uh, he was working on getting this new business off the ground, this new publishing business. Uh, there was another clue I found. Uh, uh, oh, excuse me. This is where that clue about the website cedrr.com was helpful because I was able to take that and go to the Wayback Machine and see what was selling, uh, what he was selling, what the website looked like. So I was able to get screenshots. Uh, the domain is actually for sale for $4,000. You can go buy the domain. Some people are into like this kind of stuff where they like to own memorabilia from like murder victims and like serial killers and stuff. So if you want Chuck's old domain, if you're really into the story, you can go buy it for $4,000. Uh, this story might turn into a movie one day. Who knows, right? Chuck's story might turn into a movie. If I get the story out, here's the thing. I just want to comment on this. The reason why I'm covering Chuck's story is I feel a personal connection with him at this point. I feel like whatever happened to him, we need to know the truth. I've looked into this man's story, and he was a public figure. He was a businessman. He was interviewed. He was well-known, and I believe we need to get to the truth to this, of this because I don't know if the story that's been told is the truth. And I think there are people out there that know what happened. So maybe one day people will talk, and some people have talked. That's an interesting thing. I've gotten a lot of people get in touch with me. So as you know, if you're an armchair sleuth like myself, and if you do your own research, if you're if you've got a graduate diploma from the school of hard knocks and youtube university like i do <laughs> it's just a little joke it's self deprecation then you know the wayback machine on archive.org is really helpful for seeing old websites so what this website does is it can it gets screenshots from websites from the past uh 15 years i think is how far they go back they go back pretty far um it's not an exact science there's basically what happens is there's web crawlers called spiders that go across the internet and they record website screenshots. And so you can see how like a website has evolved. It's really helpful to see like how a business has evolved or if you want to do your due diligence on a website. So the earliest record on the Wayback machine of CEDRR.com. Uh, remember, this was his second uh, company, his, his new website. Uh, this came from January 1st, 2007 which was four months after Chuck filed paperwork to uh, get Mill Valley Licensing Company started. And so I've got screenshots of it. It's just like a basic looking website. Like, you know, looks like it was put together like pretty quickly. It's no, no big deal. I mean, he had a reputation. He was selling calendars. Uh, there was various calendars uh, listed, like the Blue Angels, which is like the fighter jets. There was Rose calendars. There was art calendars. There was, of course, train calendars cat calendars, ancient civilization calendars. Uh, 
there was also a home with a a, a, a red or excuse me a gray roof, a picture of a home that I haven't been able to identify. Um, so I don't know where that home is or what it's from. Um, and then there's text in on the on the website screenshot that says mycalendardepot.com presented by Charles Didelson. So this was his website. Um, and so this other website, mycalendardepot.com, I'll get to that in a minute. Um, CEDRR.com was updated a few times over the years. So on December 19th, 2007, there was a release of the 2008 catalog of calendars. Remember when you buy calendars, you buy them for the following year, right? I mean, that makes sense. You don't want to buy a calendar for this year if you're already halfway through it. Uh, the 2008 calendars were being heavily discounted for 30% off. He wanted to liquidate his stock, right? I don't know who was printing the calendars, where he was getting them. I believe they were being stored in Nevada. Uh, I have it on prob- uh, fairly, fairly reliable sources that he was probably storing in them in Nevada. He has business address, uh, uh, addresses associated in Nevada, uh, outside of Reno, I believe. Um, so this website was live at least through January of 2008. Uh, and it, the last captured record of it was February 19th, 2008. And, and this is where it simply reads, we are closed for business. So by January, 2008, the website was still up by February 19th, 2008. There's a screenshot on the Wayback machine that says we're closed for business. No other contact information is provided. Uh, that message remained for at least two months until April 20th, 2008. And now the text reads, we are closing the CEDRR.com web address. Leftover stock of train calendars is available by mail order on our main site, mycalendardepot.com. Uh, by September 17th, 2008, CEDRR.com is fully offline. So that's it. I can basically line up timeline with that website. By September 17th, 2008, the website is offline. So I would presume that on, by, on April 20th, which is when the website was last updated, Chuck was still updating it. So he was still alive by that point. By February, or excuse me, September 17th, 2008, the website is offline. But then there are other clues on the other website he had linked to this one, which was the mycalendardepot.com site, which um, he directs people to. That's his, it says his main site. So I ran this URL through the Wayback Machine, and it had the same layout as cedrr.com, the same photos, everything, the same uh, copywriting, everything was the same as everything, same, 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 not different. <laughs> All right. On March 19, 2008, uh, there's a web capture of mycalendardepot.com, and the same simple text appears. It says, we're closed for business. So on March 19, 2008, mycalendardepot also is closed for business. And at this point, the average armchair sleuth would stop right here. And this is what separates me from you. This is why I do what I do and you do what you do. This is why you listen to me and I, I do the stories. Because I didn't stop right here. I started to look more uh, at more captures. Okay, I found one dated May 14th, 2008. And the website comes back online. 
it no longer says we're closed for business. The, the, all the photos, the copy, the uh, calendars, the layout, everything is back. But there's one addition. It says in bold red lettering near the top, it says we're sold out of stock for the 2008 calendar line except for train calendars. Uh, uh, online ordering is not currently available. Our 2009 line should be posted sometime in August 2008. So this uh, I add to the timeline. So it's another notch in the timeline. So sometime between March 19th, 2008 and May 14th, 2008, Chuck or someone on Chuck's behalf, like a webmaster, made the update with the future promise. So there was a future promise made uh, that... Our 2009 line should be posted sometime in 2008. So the 2009 calendar should be posted sometime in August 2008. So I asked myself, was this update ever posted? And I don't believe it was. At least there's no record of it. Uh, the next archive uh, capture of my calendar depot happened on December 26, 2008. So there's a gap. By this time... It, it's believed that Chuck had already gone to Bangkok and was probably murdered. At least that's how the story goes. Remember, I'm laying out how the story goes, not necessarily what the truth is. This is how the story goes. He probably had went to Thailand and Bangkok at this time. Okay. We do know, however, that, and, and keep that in mind, this is all part of the story. Be very open-minded as you continue on with me. And I know that you probably need another drink. So if you need to go get one, if you need to go get another cold one, if you need to pour another sang song, if you need a cigarette, whatever you need to do to follow along with me, please go do it. Come back. We do know that CEDRR.com was live, as in it was not just completely taken online. There was still text on it, even though it said it was closed for business. The website was still operational up until May 21st, 2008. It was fully offline, meaning it was just there was nothing there on September 17th, 2008. So sometime between May and September of 2008, the website went offline. There was no August update on mycalendardepot.com for the following year 2009 calendars. So we've got a pretty accurate timeline here of when things happened. Sometime between May and September, he stopped online sales and ordering for his new calendar business. So at least from what we can gather, it's very likely that Chuck was living in the United States, probably California, but perhaps Hawaii. And and we'll get to that in the next episode um, up until at least May 2008. So this is a date that starts to kind of uh, marinate in my mind. And I asked myself, is there anything else that can show his whereabouts after May 2008? And I found my answer in a real estate transaction record of his home in Mill Valley, California. So I found real estate records of his home, which he had owned for years. Beautiful home. According to the documents, he filed to incorporate, uh, incorporate his business, Mill Valley Licensing Company. The address used was 119 Bayview Drive, Mill Valley, California. Uh, and I can pin him on that address at least until since 1972. 
there's a specific date, 1981, that I found a letter that was online, uh, a letter that was uh, with Chuck's name on it, with that address from 1981, I was able to dig up. We'll get to that in a minute. Uh, so more than likely, he was in that home since 1972. I can pin him to that address 100% from 1981. So he was in that house for decades. It's a, The home sits on a relatively private driveway. Uh, it's a leafy street. Uh, think Northern California, Bay Area, leafy, beautiful, great views. Uh, Google Maps can't drive down that street. But I found photos on property management websites of, of the home. And uh, my sleuthing was satisfied when I found a little golden nugget on Zillow.com. Zillow.com is a basically a data platform for real estate in the United States, if you're unfamiliar. So there are a ton of photos uh, of the home on Bayview Drive. I found a ton of them, like 72 of them. Uh, I even have a link to like the listing. Uh, the current value is 1.8 million. Uh, when the whole home was last sold on August 4th, 2008, it sold for 1.355 million. And that, my friends, that date is the last official record we have of Chuck being in California or the United States that he sold the home on August 4th, 2008. So he sold that home on August 4th, 2008. It was a Monday. Uh, it's likely that the 1.355 million hit his personal bank account that week. So I want to pause right here. I want you to take a little breather. Get up and stretch your legs. Go get that cold one. I know I told you before, but I want to. I want you to go get that drink. Maybe even some tea or coffee. Because at this point, the facts and documents of Chuck's final days end. And this is where my own speculation begins. Now, it's careful speculation, but it is my own speculation. So up until this point, I have facts. I have court documents. I have dates. I have timelines. I have things that he did. I have his work. I have business records. I have litigation in the courts. Right? I can back up what I say. But after I marinated on everything that I know about the case, and especially about Chuck, the subject of this story, I came to my own conclusion, or what I thought was a firm conclusion. And it's this conclusion which I'll lay out for you now as we near the end of this first part of the story. But nothing in life is neat and tidy, right? Uh, murder mysteries aren't neat and tidy. That's what kind of why we're interested in them, right? A lot of this information I've written uh, and talked about hasn't been really exposed publicly. It's out there in the public. Like, you can go search for it, but it hasn't been, like, put into a narrative like this. Some of it was public before but hadn't been tied to this case, like the details of the lawsuit, the sale of the home, the troubles with Sidco uh, at the end of the company. But it's I, my belief that in the final months and years of Chuck's life, Understanding it would lead to a solid idea of what happened with his demise, but I believe I was wrong about that. In fact, while drafting this story, when it was about 90% complete, 
I stumbled on a single Facebook post that flipped everything I thought I knew about the case. And this one post opened up a rabbit hole into the case that led me into another bit of info that may completely change our whole understanding of what happened to Chuck. So all of that being said, the facts actually have not been exhausted on this case. You know, I've barely really presented the antagonist in this whole drama, Mr. Herbert Craig Lafone, who likely murdered the man who was hidden away in those six pieces frozen in that Bangkok freezer. So I think it's time to come to Bangkok and tuck into a dim-lit expat bar. Either on Soy Cowboy, Pot Pong, what's your choice? You've probably been in one or two of those before. And now it's time for me to outlay my own pet theories and punch holes in them as well with alternatives and tell you for the first time a story about this case that the two surviving people who knew Chuck will think about. So let's come to Thailand. Hold on to your knickers, boys and girls. This story is far from over. So I think I'm going to pause right here and say that this is the end of episode one, which has covered about half of what my first story was. So part two is going to pick up right when we come to Thailand and meet some of the characters that Chuck may have known in the last days of his life, or at least that's how the story goes, right? So we're going to stop here, pause. This will be the end of episode one. Episode two will come out here in the next couple days. And then it's going to be probably a four-part uh, four series. Episode one covered the first half of what I've already written. The second half of what I've already written will be episode two. And that's mainly going to be what happened in Thailand and with the people that were around Chuck. And it's also going to raise a really big question about what happened to Chuck. And then episode three and four are going to be updates on information that I've been able to gather from people in the past seven months that have contacted me since the story's been out. And there's still an ongoing dialogue that I have with people. So this is far from over. I'm going to pause here. This will be the end of episode one. Let me know what you think. Let me know if you like stories like this. I, I really do want to get your feedback. So please let me know and I appreciate it. We're signing off for now.